Hello and welcome to the Winter Will Come Again podcast. I'm Sarah Diedro Jordan and I'll be your host for this podcast series where we're going to be exploring the story behind the energy crisis Europe faced the past winter, its connection with plastic production and why, to ease Europe's energy needs, plastic has to go. The energy crisis, a term repeated over and over in 2022 by media outlets, politicians and people across Europe as the continent faced the repercussions of no longer having access to fossil fuels from Russia following its war on Ukraine. In the midst of this furore, Break Free from Plastic worked hard to expose some unknown and surprising truth that revealed an unlikely link between plastic production and Europe's energy crisis. Towards the end of 2022, this data and research was brought to light in Break Free from Plastic's Winter is Coming report. This data-heavy report tells such an interesting story, one that lays out the deep connection between plastics, energy, and climate. A story that was actually ignored last year throughout the energy crisis debates and one that will maintain relevance as we enter winter again later this year. Join us for this podcast series as we bring to light elements of this report and explore in a little more depth the role plastic production played and will continue to play in Europe's energy crisis. We'll be joined by guests working with the Break Free from Plastic movement, fighting to create lasting and just policies at local, national and international levels to decrease plastic production and Europe's dependency on fossil fuels. We are now going to kick off this podcast with a very special guest, Delphine Lévy-Alvarez, petrochemicals campaigner from the Break Free from Plastic movement and the person who coordinated the research and wrote the report, Winter is Coming. Thank you so much for being part of uh, today's episode. It's really exciting to have you. Sure. Hi, Sarah. Very happy to be here. So because we're opening up this podcast series with you, um, I think it would be great to just uh, bring some of the insights um, of the report. So the report obviously covers just so many insightful figures that are very important to have, I would say, concrete realizations of the impact of the petrochemical industry. So if you could maybe provide us with just two or three key figures that you would really like um, people to know about to keep in mind. What is like some key data that you'd like to, to mention from the report? So if you remember well, the objectives of the Save Gas for a Safe Winter was to reduce uh, gas consumption by 15%, right? It turns out that 15% of the gas we consume in Europe is uh, used to manufacture petrochemicals. And that it makes petrochemicals production and its biggest market plastic the biggest energy and fossil feedstock user of all the industries that we have in the EU. It's the biggest industrial user of fossil fuel. You know, that's not a small thing when you're looking at actually actively reducing fossil fuel consumption. And plastic being its biggest market, it's by far the largest industrial oil and gas and electricity as well uh, user in the EU. It, it's higher than steel production. It's higher than automobile manufacturing. It's higher than uh, food and, and, and beverage. It's higher than aviation consumption. So it, it's, it's, it's not a small thing. It's, it's really big, especially when you think that like, at least 40% of that is used to manufacture single-use packaging. 
that for most part, we do not need if we were to redesign our um, logistic chain and, and supply systems. So the, the disconnection between where the feedstock is coming from and what it's used for has always been, for me, like a source of cognitive dissonance. Like dwelling into the earth to extract something that has like needed millions of years to be formed, to then transform it through a very polluting process and a very warming uh, process for the atmosphere to then turn it into something that you're going to use for <laughs> at best a week, but most of the time for like 10 minutes to an hour, it doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. And I think when you mentioned uh, cognitive dissonance, this is it. <laughs> This is it, and I think the report shows that so clearly, but just bringing the data and the figures it makes it so obvious. So, yeah, I really hope that helps with um, the awareness. Another important thing to keep in mind is that we know that as Europe, you know, slowly moves into summertime, we have a, a bit more sun, uh, longer days right now. And so the energy crisis, you know, might potentially just drop off public radar. So what do you think... Um, people should still care about the link between plastic production and energy, as in this should be something to care for throughout the year and not just in winter time. The issue is going to come back next winter and the one after and the one after. And then also as, as summers are hotter and hotter and people are using more and more electricity to have air conditioning and fridges need more energy to cool down the products and like we still um, are in an energy crisis because climate change makes you know summers hotter and in some parts of the of, of Europe uh, winters much colder and and this require in any case an increased demand of energy and as we are um, going towards winter European governments are filling up the tanks. The, the gas tanks. I mean, um, it's not like you have a direct pipeline and then what you consume in your house is connected to someone who's producing it at almost at that very moment uh, somewhere else in the world. Like we have storage tanks. We have, we have storage of, of this uh, fossil fuel to an extent and we are building the reserve for next winter. So it's going to continue having um, impacts on, on people's energy bills in a context where we see companies making record profits. If that's not a reason for people to go down in the street, I don't know what, what is. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. If you look at the, at the numbers of the bonuses of the CEOs of the oil and gas companies uh, last year, it's, it's completely crazy. You have very well recognized institutions like the International Energy Agency that says like, no more fossil fuel projects. Like we should stop new extraction. And then the EU being, yeah, we're a leader uh, on tackling the climate crisis and, and blah, blah, blah. They're still like securing deals with new countries and encouraging exploration, especially in African countries. And I think the gas imports from the U.S. also increased 200% in that period. You know, it, this has impact on people and, and on the environment. And this is 
extremely hypocritical when you're in the meantime, you know, holding people responsible for the consumption. There's a term that's used in the report that I think it's really interesting that I'd like to just take a bit of time to get into. Can you explain uh, for our listeners and anybody who haven't heard that before, what is meant when you say petrol elephant in the room? Yeah, I mean, um, when you have an elephant in the room, it's, it's this uh, way of saying that there is something very big that everyone notices, but nobody uh, is addressing. And, and to an extent, um, governments know where oil and gas is going. Uh, the EU knows where oil and gas is going. And still, when they have in front of them uh, an urgent need to reduce oil and gas consumption, they don't, they don't talk about one of the main drivers of this consumption. An elephant is also one of the oldest species. Could have been the the petrol mammoth because of the sort of the fossil element to it. But I must apologize because um, lots of elephant lovers have told me that it's not nice to associate elephants to the oil and gas industry, and that elephants are a nice animal, and that they shouldn't be put in that position. And I'm very sorry for that. But it was the image that corresponded the most to um, what we were trying to convey, meaning that if we're not talking about fossil fuel consumption and in particular gas consumption for petrochemicals and plastic production, we are just um, consciously ignoring a big part of the problem and therefore agreeing um, that we are not going to have a big part of the solution. That was super, super valuable. So thank you so much. Maybe just to close, um, if you can tell our listeners, where can they find you? Where can they support your work? So they can find me on, on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, I now have decided to dedicate my entire work life to petrochemicals. At the time, it was just a pet project. So yeah, when, once you fall in petrochem, you, you don't get out. For me, it's the most strategic topic I can work on right now. Uh, to have an impact both on the plastic pollution crisis but also on the climate and energy crisis. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. The data is crystal clear. Plastic production is leading to an unnecessary and unsustainable amount of dependence on fossil fuels by Europe. Yet, countries across Europe and the EU are trying to make efforts to move away from fossil fuels. After all, it's often high on political agendas and international treaties such as the Paris Agreement to mitigate climate change. There's a lot of talk to suggest that we could be moving in a positive direction. However, there really has been much more talk and very little work when it comes to creating real and lasting change that will actually prevent us from reaching a tipping point in the climate crisis. And plastic production, as the research from Breakthrough from Plastic has shown, is a massive blind spot that is driving fossil fuel demands in Europe. To help us understand this link between plastic production, fossil fuels and energy a little further, 
we're bringing Andy Giorgio into the conversation. Andy is a campaigner, a consultant for climate and environmental protection and energy policy, who's quite vocal about issues around fracking. So Andy, thank you so much uh, for joining us in today's episode. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me. So to dive right in at the set of questions we have for you today, as you know, plastic was always known to be very energy intensive, but the numbers brought forth in the report are particularly high. What was your reaction to reading uh, these, these particularly high numbers, black and white? Did these findings um, surprise you at all? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the numbers are, are really high and, and surprising. Um, and as you've already said, we We've talked about it and, and thought that we will find something significant, but um, the results are, are quite striking. I mean, we're talking about 9% of the overall final gas consumption in, in Europe and 8% of the overall oil consumption, um, which is a comparison to the overall consumption, including households. And the numbers become even bigger when we zoom into the industrial consumption of oil and gas alone. I mean, it's 22% of the industrial gas consumption and 38% of the industrial oil consumption that goes into the plastic production alone in Europe. So um, these are quite high numbers. In cubic meters, for example, um, It's 25 billion cubic meters of gas in 2020. So, um, yeah, significant numbers, definitely. Um, you're actually known in the industry, in the business, as an anti-fracking, anti-LNG activist. So just for reference here as well, uh, LNG stands for liquefied natural gas. But these last years, you've been focusing on plastics and petrochemicals as well. And so... Uh, it'd be great if you can take us through how are these topics actually linked to each other? Yeah, I mean, when I first bumped into the connection between plastics, petrochemicals and oil and gas, um, it, it was quite eye-opening for myself because up until that point, I I didn't really realize that plastic is nothing but solid oil and gas and it's basically the ugly face of global warming, something which is sometimes pretty abstract, but with plastic, it becomes tangible and you can see it. So the problem is visible. So um, there was an eye opener and it was while I was supporting the British anti-fracking movement and a company named Ineos, which is one of the, the largest uh, virgin plastic producers in, in Europe, um, started to to promote shale gas and fracking in the UK. And um, to the public, they were saying that it's about, um, you know, generating heating and, and power for homes. But it became obvious that the main reason for fracking in the UK um, was to feed the very energy and, and feedstock intensive business model of Ineos. Um, because the petrochemical and plastic industry um, uses gas not only to, to generate power for these very energy-intensive production processes, but they can also use gas, in particular the so-called wet gas part of it, as a direct feedstock to produce virgin plastics. And since 
you know, the climate movement is increasing the pressure on the oil and gas industry to decarbonize a lot of sectors. What we are observing for quite a while is that the very same industry is actually trying to expand the very same fossil-based business model within the petrochemical and, and plastic sectors because they are still somewhat under the radar of the climate movement. And, and one thing that we wanted to achieve with this report is to actually highlight the fact that the climate crisis, the plastic crisis, and the energy crisis that we're in, that they're nothing but part of one big crisis driven by the same actors. Thank you so much. Just, I, I want to um, bounce back on, on what you mentioned, uh, because I actually had a question about INEOS specifically. Uh, you've been very vocal about INEOS' uh, proposed um, ethane cracker project one in the port of Antwerp. Yeah. And so first, could you please define for us what is an ethane cracker and then maybe just lay down uh, what's the problem specifically with that project? Yes. Before I do that, I'll have to actually also explain a bit the difference between wet gas and, and dry gas to, to make it a bit clearer for the people who are listening. So within certain geological layers, for example, shale layers, you'll find um, methane, which is what we often refer to as gas. And this is the, the so-called dry gas part. And you can use methane either to generate power or, or heat homes or as a, as a feedstock mainly for fertilizers. And then there are wet gas components within some geological layers. And these are ethane, propane, and butane. Um, and the industry refers to these components as, as wet gases. And you can use, uh, in particular, ethane, to replace naphtha, which is um, crude oil, basically, as a basic feedstock for the production of ethylene. And ethylene is the main building block for everything that we call plastics. I mean, you can do, you can produce other things out of it, but, but that's kind of like the, the simple story. And an ethane cracker is, is basically a big, you know, um, cooking pot where you actually put in ethane and, and out comes ethylene. I mean, a bit simplistic, but, but that's kind of like it. And Ineos in particular, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, 2008-9, they were actually struggling because this company uh, always carried a lot of debt with it. And, and they were thinking about actually closing down some of their assets and back then, the owner of this company, which is a billionaire called Jim Ratcliffe, he came up with, with this idea of switching from NAFTA, which is crude oil, to ethane, uh, mainly from the United States, because it was still is fairly cheap uh, compared to crude oil. So this was basically his, his way out of the crisis. And since then, he has established a supply chain of frac gas coming from the U.S. in the form of ethane and being then used as a raw material um, at several of their production sites in Europe. And, and one of the production sites is Antwerp, where they already have petrochemical facilities. And this is the place where Ineos wants to build a new ethane cracker, which will be the, the first uh, of its kind over a time period of 20 years. 
And Ineos intends to, to feed this ethane cracker with frack gas and also promotes this as an economic perspective and survival option, uh, if we want to call it that way, for the petrochemical industry in Europe as a whole. So this is what Enios called Project One, but I like to refer to it as Project None. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, super helpful to have a, a very detailed uh, understanding of, of that actual problem. And I would just like to move um, from Belgium to Germany, where you are based, and it'd be great to have your insight on that. You did mention offline during our Uh, chat before starting to record that you're based in a very small town in the middle of Germany and um, no other country actually has been proposing more LNG infrastructure projects than Germany uh, with a proposed capacity more than double what the Russian imports were. So could you please um, explain to us what is happening in Germany at the moment and you know if these massive LNG terminals are actually going to be built What does that mean for German and also the EU petrochemicals and plastic production? Like what concrete impacts will, will this have? Yeah, so thank you for this question because um, the mad dash for LNG build-out in Germany is, um, is really problematic. It is not justified at all by any means, not even from an energy supply point of view. Um, what we see is that The gas industry, basically, and, and also to a certain extent, uh, the petrochemical industry is actually making use of the current situation and they are pushing for unnecessary and climate wrecking projects. And we are talking now about up to at, at least 12 LNG import terminals in Germany. When I've kickstarted the German Climate Alliance against LNG over four years ago, we were facing um, up to three projects, and now it's up to 12. And quite from the beginning, it became obvious that at some of the important uh, sites, um, the, the terminals are actually destined to become an integral part of existing petrochemical clusters. So for quite a while, we were actually debating if this LNG that will come in will actually end up being consumed by households. Um, our officials in, in, in Germany, especially the, the Ministry for the Economy, they've justified this bill out by saying that, you know, after the the beginning of the war in Ukraine and after, you know, the need for a phase out of Russian gas be became more and more obvious. And then we had the explosions related to the Nord Stream one and two pipelines. Um, so they've basically said we need this project because otherwise, you know, people will freeze to death or whatever. But if you zoom into the actual import sites, you, you realize, and I repeat myself here, that we do have these petrochemical clusters that will, you know, consume a lot of the gas. We don't have yet specific numbers, so it's, so it's hard to say how much of the, the LNG that is coming in will be consumed by, by the petrochemical industry, but um, we've tried to get them um, but we, we, we weren't capable of getting the answers that we wanted to. We've asked the ministries and they came back to us saying that they themselves don't have the numbers. So the German government answer, uh, sent us an official answer saying that 
they themselves don't know how much oil and gas the petrochemical and plastic industry is consuming in Germany. But the same industry justifies this this mad dash build-up for LNG by saying that we need this in order to provide the general public with heating and power. So there's a gap between not knowing how much this very energy and feedstock intensive industry consumes and the claim that uh, we need all these LNG terminals um, in order to uh, you know, secure that, that households are warm. So coming back to, to the question of how this might impact um, in particular the, the overall development of petrochemicals and plastic production in Germany, um, what we can definitely say is that there is a huge knowledge gap related to the actual overall consumption of the German petrochemical industry, at least according to the German ministry. But thanks to the fantastic research by Amadeo and the Winter is Coming report, um, we do have, of course, numbers based on, on Eurostat data and According to these numbers, uh, 10% of the um, overall German gas consumption goes into plastics and 9% of the overall oil consumption. This corresponds somewhat to, to the numbers at EU level. But when we zoom into um, the industrial sector again, uh, then the numbers really become striking. So 24% of the industrial gas consumption in Germany goes into plastic and 42% of the oil consumption also goes into plastic. So these are, again, very significant numbers. Um, and it's really surprising to see our economy ministry running around telling the public that, you know, people need to shower cold and heat less. While at the same time, we are feeding this uh, very hungry, greedy uh, industry with oil and gas for the production of non-essential and toxic goods such as throwaway plastic. Um, just to, to bring things maybe to a, a European level here and focus on the, the future of petrochemicals in Europe. So, you know, there's Project One or Project None, as maybe I should call it now, that's been announced as uh, the biggest chemical investment in, in the EU of our generation, which is huge. Uh, and the LNG terminals, you know, announced in Germany that we've just discussed, of course, at, a, at an increasing rate. And at the same time, the EU has, you know, very ambitious climate targets that it needs to reach in the coming decades. And so maybe to, to, to close our conversation, I'd love for you to maybe explain to us how are those two seemingly paradoxical stories, again, actually are connected to each other. You know, there is an overall overwhelming acknowledgement, even by the you know, highest EU officials, that we need to get serious about tackling um, global warming and also the plastic crisis. Um, and there's also the energy crisis that, that feeds into that. But they are not acting, you know, according to what they're preaching. So um, this is definitely paradoxical, uh, maybe schizophrenic even. Um, I sometimes also wonder how one can actually say one thing and then approve Another thing that is, you know, completely the opposite of, of what you're promising people. Um, but that's nonetheless what it is. It's a reality. 
what gives me hope is that movements are growing and they are also working increasingly with one another. So, for example, the anti-gas is working with the Break Free from Plastic movement and vice versa. We do have not only this scientific knowledge, but we also have market analysis that actually confirms what we are saying. And what we need to do right now is to actually highlight the, the existing facts um, and actually use them to, to, to win the hearts and minds of people because I think that people will, will quite rapidly understand that it makes much more sense to create you know, circular economies and, and to phase out the production of certain goods based on fossil fuels, for example, plastics and, and some of the petrochemical stuff. Um, it's much easier to get an acceptance out there from the general public to do things like that instead of asking them to shower cold or heat less. And I'm not saying, you know, just heat on or, or just, you know, I don't shower for two hours. That's not the point. The point is that we cannot longer allow certain industries to actually exist if we want to exist in the future. And we need to, to actually confront our political decision makers with these facts and, and force them to actually follow the, their words and, and act according to their preachings. Very powerful closing statements. And I also really appreciate the hope um, that you put out there. Thank you so much, Andy, for your time, uh, your insights, and I think your expertise was super valuable. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Where can people find you and support your work? Where can I, our, our listeners find you? Well, um, I, I don't have a website. They can either Google my name. They can also follow me on Twitter, which is at Andy. Super. Thank you so much. Thank you. This fossil fuel boom may have meant secured energy supplies for Europe in the short term, but at what cost? Make sure to join us for our second episode where we will be taking you to the fossil fuel front lines to truly understand what Europe's hunger for oil and gas means for not just the environment, but for the people and communities facing the consequences of the petrochemical industry.